Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is tour manager Felicity Hall. But first of all, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the streaming music service Deezer, but you should look out for it because it's coming on strong. Yeah, up until now, it's sort of been a Spotify world with Apple Music and Amazon, of course, and some of the others kind of tagging along, but everything is pretty much online revolved around Spotify. But don't count Deezer out. Now, Deezer has been around for quite a while, but what's most interesting about it is it's owned by Access Industries and maybe the smartest guy in all of the music business, Len Blavatnik. He's a pretty smart guy, and he's managed to make a lot of money in the music industry. Just to give you an example, I'm sure you've heard about Warner Brothers recently going public. Well, guess who owned Warner Brothers? Yeah, Access Industries, Len Blavatnik. And now it's worth more than $15 billion. He bought it in 2011 for $3.3 billion, and the industry was kind of laughing at him at the time. Now, what's even more interesting is when Warner Brothers went public, he kept almost all of the voting stock. So now there's all of these shares out there, but he has 99% of the control. Now, he just made another deal with Deezer. And this is sort of off the radar, unless you're really watching what's going on in music in Latin America. So Deezer made a major deal in Mexico with a company called Grupo Salinas. They basically gave him a minority stake. But what Deezer gets out of it is their own television show on TV Azteca down there. Plus, Deezer is the preferred streaming network for Grupo Electra, which has 7,000 points of contact in Mexico and more in Latin America. The whole idea here is that Deezer wants to be second to Spotify, and they're making moves in order to do so, not just going the traditional route of trying to get new users by making deals to them, by giving new bundles, more marketing. No, none of those things. In fact, it's doing deals like these in Latin America, and we're seeing more in the other parts of the world. So before you know it, I predict that Deezer is going to be on everybody's radar, even if it isn't right now, today. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now, when it comes to digital audio workstations, everybody has their own favorite. I was looking at an article recently in one of the tech magazines, and they were talking about the 10 most popular digital audio workstations. But it turns out it was their most popular digital audio workstations. And when I began to do a little bit of research, it seems that everybody has their own idea of what the most popular ones are. So I decided to give you my own most popular digital audio workstations and why. So number one is Pro Tools. The reason why is that it is the professional standard. Now, there are some inroads coming from other workstations, but still, 
if you want to work in post, for instance, television post, movie post, it's a Pro Tools world. And just about everybody in the higher levels of the music business at least have to know Pro Tools. So that's still my number one, only because if you're a pro, chances are that's where you're working. Now, number two would be Logic Pro. And one of the reasons why is there's a lot of fans. It's relatively cheap if you're a Mac owner because it's only available on a Mac. I think it's only $299. But that being said, I think it's the most powerful digital audio workstation available for music creation. It's really easy to create music and to make it sound pretty good as well. Number three on my list is Cubase. And the reason for that is it's still the best, I think, when it comes to MIDI. If what you do is revolving around MIDI, and that's really important to you, then I think you should check out Cubase because it really handles that the best. It probably has the most experience out of any of them when it comes to the real deep levels of what happens with MIDI. Number four for me is Digital Performer. This one is often overlooked, but it's very, very powerful. And I think it's neck and neck with Cubase in terms of the proficiency in which it deals with MIDI. Digital Performer is a favorite of a lot of Hollywood composers. The reason why is when they do mock-ups, everything's done via MIDI, less so than it used to be, but nonetheless, there's a legacy of using Digital Performer. It's still very powerful. Number five for me is Nuendo. Nuendo is one of the best digital audio workstations out there. Unfortunately, it doesn't get enough professional attention. It was very close to giving Pro Tools a run for its money in post-production before Steinberg was sold. And now it's sort of fallen by the wayside. It's still available. You can still buy it. You can still use it. I don't know how often they update it. But that being said, it's very, very powerful. Digital Performer was my very first digital audio workstation. And then I moved to Nuendo. And I was very happy with Nuendo, but the rest of the world at that time was definitely in Pro Tools. So in order to make my life easier, I just moved over there. However, Nuendo is still one of my favorites. After that is Persona Studio One. When I talk to people in the know about digital audio workstations, most of them tell me this is the biggest up-and-comer, and sooner or later it's going to take over the world. It's very powerful. It's the developers that developed Cubase, and they tried to get everything that they didn't get right in Cubase, they tried to get it right in Studio One. It's really easy to get into. It's a pretty nice workstation. It has a lot of really great tools involved. Definitely worth checking out. The price is right. After that is Harrison Mixbus. Out of all the digital workstations I've tried, Harrison Mixbus sounds the best. It has a big analog sound, so you don't have to use many plugins in order to try to get that, especially on the Mixbus. Now, that being said, it's not a great editor, but many mix engineers will actually use this to finish off a mix because it just does sound so good, and I agree with them. Number eight on my list is Reaper. Now, you either love or hate Reaper, I think mostly because it's so customizable. For many people, that means it's too deep because it does take a little bit of time to come up with the feel that you're looking for, the user interface that's working for you. It's very affordable. It's only about 60 bucks, but it's very powerful. And I don't think there's anything more powerful on the market for the money. Number nine is Ableton Live. This is a workstation I've never been able to get my arms around, mostly because I don't do electronic music. 
That being said, people that I know that are good in Ableton can turn around things very, very quickly, and I always marvel at them. So it has to make my list even though I'm not an active user. And number 10 is Cakewalk. BandLab has made this available for free. It's extremely powerful, but it is PC only. Now, I put it in here because I think it's the equal of most of anything that's on this list. And its users are really avid. They really think it's great. They don't want to change anything else. But it is PC only, and that sort of limits it. So those are my 10 top digital audio workstations. Pro Tools still is number one, but everything else that's on the list is a really viable and powerful audio tool. My guest this week is Felicity Hall, who's been a tour manager for the past 10 years in a male-dominated world. During that time, she's worked with Snarky Puppy, Bacante, The Lane, Public Service Broadcasting, and a whole lot more. Felicity also has been running an online series about managing life on the road on Crowdcast called Tour Management 101. During the interview, we talked about dealing with sexism on the road, working through supposedly impossible scenarios, the difficulties in keeping people happy on tour, the differences between rock and jazz tours, and much more. I spoke of Felicity via Zoom from a home in Ibiza. I want to find out how you got into this business. Um, honestly, it was a complete accident, really. Um, I used to be involved in music journalism. Um, I loved music. I, I loved writing. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I can go to gigs for free if I write about them. Um, and so I got involved in that. I went on tour a couple of times and went on the road uh, just to do like behind the scenes tour diaries. And every time I would do that, I would get really annoyed because stuff was so disorganized and bands were not getting paid and they weren't eating and it just seemed ridiculous. And so I tried to help out. Um, and then I found out that that was actually a job and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, great. Okay. Um, so I started basically just doing anything I could to beg people to teach me how to do it. Um, and so I worked merchandise for a few years and just drove every tour manager I worked with mad. I was like, oh, what can I do? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Like, show me what this is for. Um, and taught myself that way and then pitched for smaller tours, did some of them and then worked my way up to, to where I'm at now which is, I mean, it's fantastic. I think it was completely accidental that I wouldn't change it for the world. <laughs> okay, how do you mean accidental? Right, no, also just like in, it's very different from anything I imagined myself doing because, um, and also the aspect of it, like it's not anything like I thought it would be. Um, I thought, oh, I want to be doing something that means that I can watch lots of shows. And then I found out that actually, as a tour manager, you barely get to see any shows because that's the 30 minutes a day that you have to send emails, like, undisturbed. It's, it's not what I thought it would be, but it's everything. It's so much more than I thought it could possibly be in a job. So you've been doing this for 10 years. You must like it. I love it. I wouldn't do anything else. Um, and it's, I think everybody that works in music has days where 
they hate everything they're doing because it's difficult and it seems like a thankless job at times. Um, but I honestly, I wouldn't change it for the world. I really wouldn't. Now, having done this myself, being a musician anyway, I know how musicians think and how they act. And the last thing in the world they want to do is organize anything themselves. And they can be extremely picky on their needs. So how do you deal with that? It's like herding cats, I bet. <laughs> it's exactly like herding cats. Um, what I find is that it's as much psychology as it is anything else. And that everybody, every musician has an aspect of something that they despise. But every musician has something that they actually don't mind all that much. Um, and so for some people, like for instance, they don't mind getting up very early in the morning if it means that they get to catch one plane instead of two planes, which might have been a, you know, a, a later departure time. But um, they detest that so much that they'll make the sacrifice. And so what I try to do as much as I can is balance it between like the things that are picky that are necessary to keep them happy while at the same time making sure it's actually viable as well. And I think that once you've worked with a band for a little bit of time and they trust you to do that, um, they know that you will have done everything in your power to give them the demands that they want. Um, but that, and so if it doesn't happen, it's a rarity. Um, and so that they're more willing to accept that it isn't possible some of the time. Now, given that you're a woman in a man's, mostly man's world, you must have a very thick skin because that can be difficult. I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's definitely getting better than it was when I started, but it can be absolutely horrendous. And I definitely didn't used to have a thick skin. It used to really upset me. And it, like it still does, actually. Um, I think one of my favorite ones lately, because uh, I drive as well, and sometimes, like, you know, we have the big, like, like high roof, long wheelbase, big split events. And I was driving one of these and I pulled up behind the promoter because I was following him to the hotel. And like I, I waited because I didn't know where to park. And he came to the van and he looked inside and he said, you can't drive, you're a woman. Huh. And I said, what? And he said, no, no, get out. One of you take over and pointed at the van. And they were like, dude, what are you talking about? And he was, he was furious that I was driving. And... Honestly, I think what I've come to realize is that if people are so unbelievably set in their ways that they can't consider the fact that women, you know, women have the right to vote now um, and that women can drive and women can, can work in these kind of jobs, you're not going to be able to change their minds and there's nothing that you can do to change their minds. And I used to get really, really fired up and thinking I'm going to show them that I'm better than this or that I can do this. But actually, like, there's no point. Because then if you go in there with a really strong feminist attitude, all you're going to do is confirm all their worst ideas about women. And so now I just completely ignore it and pretend that it's not even an issue, even when I can see that it is. Because that way I found that it tends to, tends to get more results. Um, but there's no denying that it definitely adds another another level onto like onto the difficulty factor really 
But also, I think it kind of goes both ways. I think when you're dealing with musicians, especially, um, a lot of them have told me, especially if it's been an all male band, um, a lot of them have told me that actually having a woman around makes the dynamic easier on the road because it just adds a different perspective that they're not used to and things are marginally tamer as a result. And so I think that it's, there's definitely starting to become a shift and people are seeing that it can be a positive thing as well as a difficulty. Yeah, I can see that. Mellow the vibe out a little bit. Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. What's the most fun thing that you do? Oh, that's a question and a half. Personally, I love really impossible scenarios. And this is a perverse kind of fun, I feel. And it's, I don't know whether I should be proud of it or not. Um, but one I had quite recently, it was in, uh, like at the tail end of last year when all the strikes were going on in France and the entire country was shut down and nothing was happening and everything had just ground to like a complete stop. And we needed a piano and we needed a piano for free and we needed a piano two hours later. Um, and I got us a piano for free, um, within two hours, like in the middle of a countrywide strike. And I love making stuff happen that seems completely impossible and just dealing with problems that you never even expect should be problems. I find that fascinating. <laughs> I could see where that would happen a lot. Things that, <laughs> that you don't expect to be a problem becomes one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so what's the thing that you dislike the most? Stuff I can't sort out. <laughs> um, I think I find it really difficult to deal with like interpersonal issues that there is no solving. Because if two of your band members or crew members or band and crew, whoever, if there's real animosity there and there's nothing that you can do to fix it, like often it's a long-running thing. Because if you have somebody that's, the band adore who has worked with them for years as a sound engineer um but they've also got like say a new bass player who's come in who detests the sound engineer and they've been trying to make this work for three or four years you're not going to be able to fix that and having that level of like disagreement there between people it always always brings the entire mood down you can't fix that and I think because I, I'm very, very much a problem solver, I find it really tough when I can't just get in there and like sort it out. And it's hard not to take that personally, even though everything about me knows that there's literally nothing I could do to make that situation any better. <laughs> you know, it's very interesting. Just today, an interview that I did with Camille Barbone posted on the podcast, the, the current one, and she went back to school to get her degree in psychology. Oh, wow. She was working as a music exec, a label exec. She went back just to figure out how to deal with things like that. I and mean, she had the, basically the same attitude as you, but there were some things that were just not fixable. So, and they're interpersonal things. So that was a way for her to understand it at least. Wow. No, that's, that's incredible. And I think a lot of people, um, I think, I mean, I had no idea that this was what the job would entail when like I first started doing it. And actually, like that seems to be the most important aspect of what I actually do is keeping people happy. And that is 
it's endlessly difficult like especially in such an unnatural situation as touring like you've been on the road you know what it's like yeah it's yeah it's a difficult one and it's funny because it's hard enough keeping one person happy keeping like your mate your significant other let alone five other people or seven or ten or however many that you have it's yeah. just compounded you know my hat's off to you for even trying that's amazing <laughs> Thanks. I'm not sure if it says a lot about my character that I carry on doing something that's <laughs> so endlessly painful. Um, but it's it's great, and it's I find that people are fascinating in themselves, and music is endlessly fascinating. And when all of that kind of interacts, it's just magical, really. When it goes well, there is no greater feeling than watching a band play an amazing gig and everybody's happy and everything has just worked like what work. It's, it's incredible. I have a friend who's a, a sound engineer. He does studio and he does live and he does big and small tours. And on the small tours, he's now being forced to be the road manager as well as the engineer. And it's basically, if you want the gig for one, you have to do the other. And getting paid marginally more for it now that's how they're saving money have you run into anything like that oh so many times um like so many times i have lost gigs because i'm not a sound engineer um and a lot of the time i'll be a tour manager but i'll also be a driver and i'll also be selling merchandise and all of this and it's i understand why people do it because money is tight everyone knows that money is not in music anymore in the way that it was but I think that can be very much like a jack of all trades, master of none situation. Because something does suffer. There are only so many hours of the day. It's like when musicians are trying to like manage themselves on the road. I don't, I don't know how they do it. You're in, not only is it a lot of work, but you're in two completely different headspaces for it. And so I think trying to do that, it's really tough. And honestly, I mean, fair play to him for being able to do that. Because yeah. I just, I just don't think I could. Could. well if I could do sound which I can't um but it's it's incredibly tough and it's very difficult because I think in that situation you're always being pulled in a direction that you're not capable of going in all at the same time you've been doing this for 10 years what has changed in that time period in your job I mean I'm doing bigger tours than I ever did on a personal level, like I've, I've changed from rock and metal mainly to mainly jazz. And so that's been like the two are completely different things. Like, and you, you'd imagine that touring is going to be the same, but it's not. It's just not. But I think, I think in the industry in general, definitely wages have gone down. Um, and definitely people are being asked to do a whole lot more like for the same job. And that is very, very tough to watch. And I think that's only a negative thing. However, I also think that bands are starting to be more creative with the merchandise that they're selling. Like it used to be that you would get like the choice of one black t-shirt when you went to a gig. And now you have like 22 different t-shirt designs from everything up to babies to like, you know, quadruple XLs in every color imaginable and mugs and tea towels and anything else that you can imagine. And so bands are now, I think, starting to find more creative ways to make money, which is fantastic. Um, I think that masterclasses and lessons are becoming more common to be incorporated on actual tours. 
which is which is fascinating really and like drum clinics and guitar clinics on the road which is a I, again I think it's a great addition because I think that anything that enables you to reach out to more people on in the same like in the same frame of time is a good thing um you've got all these vip meet and greets now which uh and that that's difficult i don't know what i think about them i think that can be a wonderful thing if the band put in effort and really make you know make the effort to interact with fans and spend quality time with them and i have been on the road with bands that have done that and they've, you know, it's been lovely because they've chatted and they've spoken and they've really connected. And that's been beautiful to see. But I've done tours as well where bands have rocked up and taken a quick picture with somebody and then gone. And that's like $50 worth. And you're like, oh, that's that's not great. Um, but I think I think all in all, creativity has has increased if that's possible. Like touring used to be you go somewhere, you play a show. And you go to the next one. And I don't think it's necessarily about that anymore. It's with the rise of social media, like you go somewhere, you document your journey to somewhere, you discover things about the area, you interact with your fans before you even get there. Because you've got fans on Instagram saying, oh, check out this place of interest. This is great um, to see. And you've got all of these extra things going on when you're on the road. And so I think it's much more, of a kind of mixed process now it's not all about the music it's about how you interact with your fans on your journey in that tour and I think that's wonderful actually I know it's it's difficult as well because often a lot of the time you know people feel all this pressure to be constantly posting on social media and constantly involved and that is a difficulty but if you're a fan of the music, I think that the access you have got now and the understanding and the level of the level of like camaraderie you feel with a band that you now follow is so much more than it ever was. And I think that's a beautiful thing for a lot of music fans. Is social media something that's on your plate? Meaning, do you have to make sure that the band or some members are doing it all the time? Um, that will depend on the band that I'm with. Um, some bands, yes. Like I'll always make sure that I take at least two or three good photos a night that, like of the show that can be used for social media. And that kind of, most bands honestly are now very, very good at doing that kind of thing themselves because they have to be. And people like rebelled against it for so long and a lot of people I worked with really didn't want to do that. But I think now they're realizing that actually you don't really have a choice. Um, it's just, it's another part of the music industry now. And so normally they're pretty good at making sure that they they post stuff. But I'm always around to ensure that they've actually got footage to post. <laughs> yeah, that's important. Yeah. <laughs> What's your dynamic like with management? In other words, how often do you check in with them? Is it a daily thing? That will depend on the manager. Some of them like to be involved every step of the way. Others really don't. Um, I like to keep them up to date with ticket sales and numbers. And if there's an issue, depending on what the issue is, I'll reach out to management. Um, I, I think it's often management and the bands will have very different priorities. And like as a tour manager, my priority has to be making sure that the band are happy. So if management are pushing for something that I know is really going to 
upset the band or just add an extra level of pressure that they can't deal with at that moment in time or that they just don't want to have to deal with for another day or two, then I'll absolutely make sure that I'm working with the band on that one and holding management off while I can. Um, but if you, like, the thing is, if you're working with a really good manager, then you can say that to them and they don't mind. They understand. And I'm lucky in that most of the bands I work with now have got fantastic managers. And that's when it just works beautifully because you've got really good communication channels between everybody. Um, but yeah, it's, you don't want to alienate management, but you also have to make sure that what they're asking is realistic. And if they've not spent any time on the road themselves, they don't always know what realistic is and what it's not. Yeah. You mentioned that you were doing mostly rock and metal and now you switched over to jazz. Was that something intentional? <laughs> not in the slightest. <laughs> no, um, I was actually, I was tour managing in Manchester for the support band on a Living Colour gig. And the rep for that show was um, a girl called Rose, who is Snarky Puppy's tour manager. And we, like two female tour managers, both from Manchester, it's, it's quite unusual. And so we kept in touch and she needed a tour covering for Bob Reynolds, who is one of Snarky's uh, sax players. And I covered that tour and I was like, oh, this is, this is amazing. And it was like this whole genre. I had absolutely no experience with whatsoever because um, my parents had never been into jazz. I'd never really listened to it in my life. And I had very, like, definite ideas of what it was. And since I started working with all of these guys, all those, win like, ideas are completely out of the window. Um, and it, it fascinates me. It absolutely fascinates me. Because um, every jazz band that you come across is vastly different from mm. each other, and that's amazing. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this, but are the tours mellower? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong in what I assumed then. Yeah, I mean, this is honestly, this is what I thought. I was like, okay, well, you know, rock and metal bands, they're like, they're going to take some beating. Honestly, the jazz guys just knock them out of the park. <laughs> um, it's, it's eternally amazing. It really is. Never would have thought. Neither would I. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When you're tour managing a neck that has a female and a female band member or somebody that's supporting the band it must help the fact that you're there but that being said then it could almost be the a versus the b team you know have you experienced that yes actually and it can be either amazing or terrible and i've experienced both it it depends on, because I'm not particularly a very feminine girl. Like, I don't, well, at least I don't think of myself as a very feminine girl. And so I've always found it quite hard to, um, like, to interact with people who are very, you know, very, very feminine, really. It's just not something that I understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I... I'm terrible at what is, like, you know, I guess uh, classed as, like, girl stuff. I'm hopeless with makeup advice. I'm awful with doing people's hair. Um, and I'm the worst person in the world to have, like, if, if there's some kind of crisis like that. Um, 
And so that can be difficult because I think also girls tend to go into these things with very definite ideas of what other females are like. Um, and that's that can be a difficult one to get over. Like if you're working with an artist who is very much, I'm the center of attention, I'm this girl, I'm this, and then they can be really, they can be really aggressive. Um, but I have found that that does tend to clear up after a little while. Um, but it's, the thing is though, I think with that, that can often be the same with guys as well. And if somebody has that, I think it's an ego thing rather than a gender thing. I think the gender adds to it a little. But if somebody has an ego, whether they're male or female, then they're always going to be wary of new people uh, because they want to make sure that the new person knows their place (laughs) and they want to make sure that they're still the person that they feel the need to be. And, yeah, I think probably the, the having a girl in that position adds to that slightly, but it probably doesn't make as much difference as you would expect it to. Mm, okay. What's the worst thing that happened to you on tour? <laughs> um, how PC do we need to keep this? <laughs> <laughs> um, Whatever yeah, you like. I was, all right. Um, I was at a show once and I was tour managing and driving and selling merchandise. I finished setting up the merchandise store um, and a couple of the security guards came over and like we're trying to get some free t-shirts and this was a little tour. We did not have the money to be giving free t-shirts. Um, anyway, there was this whole thing that happened and they threatened to gang rape me unless I gave them some freebies. Mm. So that was good. That was a really terrible day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not up there in my highlights, but it happens. It's awful and that it happens. Um, I complained to the venue about that. The entire security team got fired. I mean, is that a win? I don't know. It's a something. <laughs> wow. Can you feel when a tour is going to be a good one or a bad one before you go out? That's a really good question. Um, if you know the people that you're touring with and you know that they've already got a whole host of issues as a band, and you know those issues haven't been resolved, you know it's going to be tough. If it's somebody that you've worked with before and it's you know it's a special tour, you know you've got a great lineup coming along and you know um, that the shows are going to be good, you know that it's going to be mainly fantastic. Um, but I think any time that you, you have shows in places that are more difficult to do shows, Like, you know, you're going to have logistical problems throughout. You know, you're going to have real kickbacks from promoters just not providing stuff. Like, you can always tell the places that these things are going to happen. And you always know if you're going into a tour that's mainly these places that it's just going to be an uphill struggle all the way. Um, But then you have the polar opposite of that when you've got a whole host of shows in amazing venues that you know are really looking after you. You've had great communication from promoters. Everything has just been agreed weeks in advance. Everyone's been super, super organized. You know that's going to go really well. And so you can absolutely judge it like that. But then all it takes is for one odd, unexpected thing to happen when you're out on the road and that just (laughs) all your thoughts are just gone. Yeah. How do you think things are going to change here in the future when it's time to go back on the road? You got a feel for that? 
honestly no not at the moment like we're all we're all thinking about this and talking about it so much i think we i would be surprised if i toured before next year i would be really surprised um i think that something is that is going to be a big big cause of change is airlines and whether they go out of business or not because especially in Europe, not so much in the States, because I, I feel that you've not got nearly as many budget carriers as we do over here. Um, but in Europe, if those budget carriers go, it's not going to be financially viable to tour Europe um, if all of those fold. It's just not. And so the way that we tour is going to be incredibly different. Um, and as for festivals and outdoor events and arena shows, I can't see how on earth they're going to manage to have these with things being like they are at the moment. But I also think that people are going to get to a stage where they're so sick of staying inside and not going to gigs and not going out and not seeing music and experiencing life that people are going to be like, you know what? We don't care how, like, we don't care if we get sick. Like we would prefer to get sick and risk this as a society than we would to stay in our houses for another year. And it could go it could go either way, really. And it, I think definitely it's not going to be the same. And nothing about touring is going to be the same for quite some time. You mentioned about budget airlines possibly going out of business, but you can say the same thing for venues who they're living on the edge anyway, so this cannot be good for them. No. I don't think, I, honestly, I don't know what a lot of places in the world have put into place. Um, I know that there have been a huge amount of like budget, not budget cuts, um, huge amounts of like tax cuts and tax breaks and all of this kind of thing for small businesses. And all I can do is hope with all my heart that um, that saves a lot of them because everyone's in the same position. Um, and I think that that is that's only something that can be positive because everybody's going through this. And so everybody has to be understanding. Um, I think that, yes, some venues are going to be lost, which is heartbreaking. But also, just because this is going on doesn't mean that people are not going to want music. Like, every disaster that's happened throughout history, like, music has always been there. It's always been a consistent. And so, yes, we might lose some venues, but I think that more venues are going to come up in their place or people are going to take them over because, like, the world, it's not just going to be like, oh, yeah, we're, we're just not going to have music now. People are always going to have that absolute desire for it, and that that's never going to change. Yeah, I agree. How about Brexit? I've been watching what the ramifications are. Have they gone into effect in terms of uh, what you need to go in and out of, of the UK? Not yet, but I've only had one tour going in or out of the UK since Brexit um, because everything else has been cancelled. Mm. Um, and at the moment, no, the UK is in a transition period until the end of, I think it's the end of this year. And so technically speaking, we shouldn't have any major issues just yet. However, it's going to be incredibly difficult for bands to be touring England, uh, after this, because you've got, so you've got something called a carnet, which yeah. is a list of equipment that bands have to write that they're carrying with them. Um, and if you go into Switzerland at the moment, for example, or Norway, they're not European countries. And so you have to have this carne. Um, you'll have to do the same for England now. 
but the amount that it costs to get this carne and then the amount of tax that you're going to have to pay on merchandise sales, it's going to make it very difficult. And the UK is, it's not a good place to tour anyway, in all honesty. Um, a lot of the venues now are charging like 25% merchandise commission on every, yeah, and that's that's before anything else, like before any other taxes. And so if you add like Brexit commission onto merch commission plus the additional cost of getting everyone there, the additional cost of visas, we don't know how much that's going to be. It makes it more and more financially restrictive. I heard about what that was going to be. It was going to be something the equivalent of 450 American dollars per person. Plus, you needed to verify that you had at least a thousand pounds in a bank account somewhere, which is ridiculous. And especially for musicians, you think they have that? <laughs> Most of them. <you> know. <laughs> musicians with a thousand pounds, like no one's going to be touring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, like at the moment, though, for me to get my work visa for America, um, I mean, that was unbelievably expensive. I think I paid about three and a half thousand dollars for that. Oh. Um, and yeah. And that was like, that was embassy visits. And it was like providing proof why I should be going to the States to work and all of this. And so if they're claiming that they're putting a reciprocal agreement in place, they've got the grounds to back them for that. But honestly, I think that England are being incredibly arrogant, thinking that people are just going to pay that and that it's going to be worth it for them because honestly, it's not. Yeah. Um, it's just not. And I feel that's a real shame. But already before Brexit, a lot of people were flying from England to Europe to go to Gates because it was cheaper. <laughs> and that in itself is mad. But like ticket prices in the UK are obscene. The amount of merchandise like prices because bands have now got to cover all this extra commission. It's huge. And so you can get a flight to somewhere in Europe for like 30 bucks return. You can pay less money for the show. You can stay in a nice hotel and you can have a weekend away. And so people yeah. will just do that. Yeah, that sounds better. <laughs> yeah. Last question, Felicity. And thanks for your time. I enjoyed the conversation oh, tremendously. I hugely enjoyed this. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> What's the best piece of business advice that you've either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? That if you don't believe you're worth hiring for a job, nobody else is going to believe that you are. Like there are so many people in the world that do my job that are, and like it's it's very difficult, especially when you start working with bands who you have idolized, and then they're asking you to work with them. You're just like, why are you doing this? Like it's you know you could have anyone in the world that you want. Why would you choose me? But if you think like that, people aren't going to hire you, and you need to you need to be able to take a step back and look at the job that you do, and. Like, I mean, I, I have made lists. Uh, I love a good list. Um, but, you know, I've made lists about why I'm good for this job, why people absolutely should hire me and why I should be proud of the work that I've done. Because the first person that has to believe that is is me. And in any job that you do, if you think you're not good enough, people will think you're not good enough. Whereas if you are confident and sure of yourself, people will absolutely be confident in you because of that. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, 
Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.